Check. Check one. All set. And so we'll turn it. I'm sorry. Let me turn there now. My bad. I think we'll read from the ESV today. Matthew 26. We're going to start with verse 36. Matthew 26. We're going to start with verse 36. Last week, we looked at Jesus and His time with the disciples in the upper room where He gave them the first Lord's Supper ever, communion ever. And we looked at the most important part of that encounter, which was Jesus' explanation of His death. Why did He die? So that's, that was last week. Again, this is all happening in, a, in about two days. This upper room is just before the day that Jesus he gets arrested in the morning and he begins to get beaten uh, all day long and then he's crucified on Friday that evening. So we're still in that evening, right? He's just been in the upper room with his disciples. He's just served them the Lord's Supper. And now he's heading with his disciples into a garden. Let's read about it. Then Jesus went with them, that is the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's how that phrase goes next. Just kidding. So as I just mentioned, we're headed to the cross. Here we are, the final hours before Jesus is going to be crucified, but also the final hours before Jesus is going to be resurrected. So there's both sorrow and there's hope. Tonight, or at least tonight meaning this passage, it's about sorrow. It's about pain. It's about the agony of Jesus. You know, there's another writing where a cup is talked about, another ancient writing, and that is the writings of Plato. You may have heard of him, famous dude. Uh, he w- and one of his ri- You've heard of him? Have you heard of Plato, Andrew? Impressive. So one of his writings talks about a cup. 
And that is, and here, here's just to give you an illustration, this is what a cup looks like, if you're wondering. The cup that Plato talks about is the cup that Socrates, his teacher, drank. I don't know if you've heard of this, but Socrates was put on trial in the city of Athens for his political, maybe religious, but philosophical views. And because Socrates got in trouble, they believed that he was conspiring with Sparta, which is the sworn enemy, as you might imagine, of Athens at that time, if you know your history. And he, had a, he was condemned. The verdict came down on Socrates, and he was condemned to die. He chose, as his preferred method of dying, to drink from a cup. I don't know if you know this story, but he chose to drink poison. And it was this poison called hemlock. Has anybody, anybody ever heard of hemlock? Does anybody know what it is? It was basically a weed. And it grows primarily in the Mediterranean. It grows about two to four feet high. And it's a powerful poison. Basically what you do is you crush it up, and you mix it with some tea or you mix it with some water, and then you drink it. And at first, it's not so bad because you feel basically like you're drunk. And it's this nice sort of state of uh, confusion and your worries kind of melt away. And then the true effects begin to kick in and your central nervous system begins to shut down. And as your central nervous system begins to shut down, you can't breathe. But it's very slow. It's not like all of a sudden getting choked and then boom, you fall over and you die and you pass out. It's this slow, slowly the oxygen begins to get sucked out of your body until finally you're just barely breathing and you're trying to suck in air. It's awful. It's really nasty and gross and awful. And Plato didn't paint it that way in his writings about Socrates, but we know from history that it was terrible. All because he drank a cup. And so we're going to look today at another cup. And we're going to look at a cup today that Jesus is going to talk about in this passage that is a thousand, probably more than that, a thousand times worse than the cup that Socrates had to drink for his punishment and his political views. You heard it as Jesus enters into the garden. You heard him talk about this cup. He asks for the Father to take it away from him. And I want us to dive into what he meant and what was happening. And we're going to look at what he meant and what was happening in three ways. We're going to look at Jesus and his first taste of the cup. We're going to look at Jesus and his first look into the cup. And then we're going to end with what it means for us that Jesus drank the cup. Okay, so those are our three things we're going to look at. The taste of the cup, the looking into the cup, and lastly, what it means for us that Jesus drank the cup. Okay, the taste of the cup. So the question that scholars have always wondered about this passage, and I think normal people wonder, you may have actually wondered it this morning, is why? Why is Jesus experiencing this incredibly intense level of agony as he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane? Now, what do I mean by that? I mean this. We believe that Jesus was both God and and man. And, and even in his human understanding, much less his, his God understanding, he knew exactly what was coming. And he had known for a long, who knows, maybe all of history, he had known what was going to happen the next day. 
So his agony in the garden, and a couple of the other writers, not Matthew, but Luke and Mark, both share the fact that Jesus began to sweat blood in the garden, which means his body went into such extreme shock. That's the only time a human being sweats blood is when you experience an extreme shock to your system. Terror. Horror. That's what Jesus is experiencing here. But it's certainly not because Jesus is getting some new information. It's not because Jesus is just finally going, oh my goodness, tomorrow I'm actually going to die. He knew this. He was preparing weeks, years in advance, he was preparing the disciples for his own death. So the question that many scholars have asked and many people have asked is, what is going on in this passage? I mean, if you think about it for a minute, think of some other martyrs. You may have studied other martyrs. You may have studied other people who were killed. Let's look at Socrates, right? We, didn't, we don't even know or think necessarily that he was a Christian or a believer in some way. But he handled his death with incredible poise. And from the writings of Plato, we understand that he had bravery. He, had, he took it as a noble act that he was going to drink this poison and stand up for the views that he had about Athens and about the people of the oligarchy in the, at the time. You, I mean, it, there's countless other stories of martyrs, Christian martyrs, who entered their death with, with poise and with bravery and with this sense of purpose, by God's grace, of course. So why the Savior of the world, God's own Son, why is he in horrific agony here in the garden as he is entering, facing his own death. It just doesn't seem to make sense. One last example. Fun one. Braveheart. Anybody seen that movie? Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. Okay. Close your ears if you're going to see the movie sometime soon. But at the end of the movie, William Wallace, whose sole drive, his sole purpose, his vision is to save the people of Scotland from a tyrannical rule. And his great cry as he's being killed, he's being drawn and quartered in this horrible torture device. He yells out, Freedom! Right? A glorious moment. And here we are, Jesus, the Savior, and he's sweating blood and asking for God to take something away from him. What's happening? Let's dive in. Because Jesus is tasting the cup. He was beginning to taste the cup. And because of that, he was under extreme shock. He was in terror. And the cup, let's describe the cup so we can understand this passage. The cup is the cup of God's wrath. That's what he was facing. The first taste of the cup of of God's wrath. And y'all, let's call a spade a spade. It's not fun, especially in 2018, to talk about the concept of God's wrath. This is not a popular thing. I would not necessarily bring this up at work tomorrow, first thing in the morning. But it's important for us to understand God's wrath, to understand this passage, and what was going on with this cup that Jesus was asking to be taken away from him. In the Old Testament, The cup, just like the one that Socrates drank, is associated with death, with terror, with horror, right? Something filled with poison. 
And so we see that in, for instance, Ezekiel chapter 23, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. Let me read a couple of those. Jeremiah 25 says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, verse 17 says, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And in Revelation 14, an angel speaks and says, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So the cup of God's wrath is a picture, a reference to God's justice against sin and unrighteousness. So I admit, many of us, I mean, I include myself in this, just don't, just don't like this concept of God being a wrathful God. But at the same time, let's think about this, we want justice. We want justice in our own life. We want justice in the world. We want people to pay for their crimes. Do we not? You want, if somebody takes something from you, you want them to pay. Because when there is a crime, when there is a, something, a sin committed against you, there is a debt that is created. There is a cost associated with it. Now, let's, talk, let's go more deeply into God's wrath. One more step. Many times, we like to think of hell as some sort of hot torture device that God uses uh, to punt to just because he's vindictive and he likes to punish people. But that is not at all the biblical description of hell. Hell is something, that's something we would do. We, if we were going to punish someone, would think, ooh, I want to torture them, just make them feel horrible things. That's not a biblical concept, though. The biblical concept of hell is some, someone who's being separated from God. And the reason we get this idea of hell being something like a fire is because Jesus referred to hell as this thing called Gehenna. You've heard of that term? And it was a trash pile outside the city of Jerusalem where they burned trash. And so throughout history, people have associated hell with fire and with a furnace. And there is other biblical references to that. But Jesus' main point when he talked about Gehenna was that people would be separated from human relationship. And more importantly, they would be sent outside the city and separated from the temple. Which is what? The place where God was. The place where God was worshipped. They were separated from God. That is the essence of hell. And now sin is the same way. Sin, as God's wrath comes against sin, sin is something that separates us from God. That's the true nature of sin. And what is God's ultimate punishment for sin? Allowing someone to be given over fully to that sin and be separated from him. That's his ultimate punishment. We read about it in Romans chapter 1. Here's what Romans chapter 1 says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse... For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Key point right here. 
Therefore, therefore God did what? Smote them with a lightning bolt from his finger? Because they were godless? They were in wickedness? No. What did he do? Therefore, God gave them over. He let them go. He gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. The sin that fills this world, y'all, is desire gone mad. It's desire gone mad. And God hates it. God hates that people are giving themselves over to false gods. He wants people to turn from them and turn to Him. It's not that God is just like, I'm out there, my God's wrath. I'm just going to smote people with my finger. It's not that at all. It's that He knows if I release them to their sin, they're going to... They're gonna, they're going to be lost completely. They're going to forever separate themselves from me, and I want them. I'm a God of love. I am a God who draws people to myself. You know, our culture rejects the notion of God's wrath, and often many churches and many uh, Christians will reject the notion of God's wrath. But I think it's it's at their at a, it's not a great idea, because. God's wrath actually actually shows His love. I know that sounds strange, but it shows His love. It shows that there's actually a cost for sin. Look at the cost. Look at what it costs. That's what we're doing this whole week, is this Passion Week leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. There's a high cost, and God pays it Himself. The death of Jesus is the center point of Christianity, and it loses its power without the wrath of God. You know... Um, in um, John chapter 3, it says this. The judgment of God is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come near to the light so others can see what they're doing is what from God and what He wants. He longs, God longs for people to reject the sin and to come from to him for satisfaction. He longs for people to satisfy their desires of their hearts in him and not in idols and addictions. But his justice will and must come down on evil. And many people will, many people will in the end get exactly what they've always wanted. Total separation from God and from his goodness. That's hell. That's hell. And that's exactly what Jesus is tasting in this passage. When he walks into the garden, it says that he began to experience something. He began to experience hell. You hear him call out to the Father. He says, Father, if you can take this cup from me, please take it away. The reason that he's sweating blood at this point is because when he asks that question, you know what he hears? Nothing. Silence. No response. He is entering hell. And hell isn't this like, again, it's not like Jesus walked into the garden and there was all these flames kind of moving around and there was this, there's this little man walking around who had a red coat on and a tail and a little pitchfork. That's not what was going on. 
He was entering, he was tasting for the first moment what it was like to be totally separated from the one who was his only source of love and life. And his very being felt it was being ripped apart. And so he sweat blood in that garden. It was an awful, awful experience. He was utterly alone. And sometimes on the surface we think when he enters this garden that the true suffering was the fact that his best friends in the world were falling asleep while he was going through this time of suffering. But that's not what we're meant to get from this. We're meant to get from this not only were his friends falling asleep, but God was not responding to him. He tries to pray three times, God, respond to me. Father, you're all I have. Father, come, help me. Save me. Take this cup from me. I'm tasting hell right now. Take this cup away from me. It's really important for us to understand that is where his agony comes from. Because it was an extreme loneliness as he tasted the first fruits of this going to hell for us. And that leads us into our second point. He tasted of the cup of God's wrath. But he also looked into the cup of God's wrath. This is really important. He looked inside the cup. And he saw what was there. God was, letting this, God was letting his own son experience this awfulness. Because it was very important for Jesus to, to know what he was facing. It was very important for him to, to, in his volition, to love others and love God perfectly. In his final moment, where his despair was its greatest, he was beginning to show that his love was deep and his love was was wide, both for God and for others. Think about it for a minute. Jesus was going through this intense amount of suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what was happening to his best friends? They're falling asleep, right? And he's facing the reality of his death, of this separation from God, and he's saying, guess who I'm doing it for? These people that are all sleep, falling asleep around me. That's who I'm doing it for. Jonathan Edwards, a great theologian, puts it like this. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded. Therefore God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand and view its raging flames, that he might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. If Christ had not fully known before he took and drank it, it would not have properly been his own action as a human being. And get this, but when he took that cup then, knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful, and so was his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. It is very important for us to understand that this was happening. Jesus doing this, his voluntary doing this, his perfect obedience to God was because he was reversing the curse that happened in the garden at the very beginning of the Bible. This was the moment. Instead of Adam, who entered into the garden and disobeys God and does the easy route and takes from the tree, Jesus enters the garden, perfectly obeys, and then goes up on the tree. This is called reversing the curse. Both of them happened in a garden. And both of them have a tremendous impact on our lives. So let's look at, let's end with that. The impact on our lives. There is a freedom that comes to all of us from the fact that Jesus not only faced the cup of God's wrath, but he drank it. He drank it down to its very bottom. He drank it to its, 
what's called the dregs. The bottom, the point is, Jesus took on hell for you. This was hell, and he took it on for you. Jesus experienced the agony of being cut off from the Father so that we never have to face the agony of being cut off from the Father. We're promised that we will never be alone, even in the moments of our greatest suffering. You know, Romans chapter 8, at the very end, it says, there's nothing, nothing in heaven, in hell, that can separate us from the love of God. I don't know what you entered in here with this morning. I don't know what you were feeling, feeling bad about yourself, feeling bad about some things you've done, whatever it is. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God that is in Christ when you believe in Him. Hell can't do it. Do you think the few screw-ups you've had can do it? Can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Let's end with this, though. When we say that the wrath of God was drank to the dregs by Jesus so that we don't have to face the wrath of God, there is still a wrath that we have to deal with. Not to be separated from the Father, but to be separated from our sin. One of my favorite illustrations in all of C.S. Lewis's work is in this book called The Great Divorce. Ever heard of this book? It's basically where these, uh, there's like a tourist bus that travels from the outskirts of hell and goes and visits heaven. And so there's all these people that are in sort of this sort of purgatory that he makes up. They get to take this travel bus up into heaven and see what it's like up there. And it says, C.S. Lewis describes them as being wispy, as being ephemeral, as being like smoke. And heaven, on the other hand, is this incredibly vivid and real and incredible place. But they just get to visit. They just get to look at it. And there's this moment, though, where there's one of these smoky, wispy people. And it says he was dark and oily, as C.S. Lewis describes him. And he's walking away from the mountain of God, from God's presence. And he has a red lizard on his shoulder. And the red lizard is whispering into his ear. And the red lizard is an, is an uh, illustration of sin, of a besetting sin in someone's life, something that they can't get rid of. And it's whispering into his ear, and he's like, the man looks over, and he's like, shut up, shut up. You can't be in here with me. You can't say those things in here. And so he's walking away, he's embarrassed, he's walking away from the mountain of God, and all of a sudden, this, this angel, who's majestic and beautiful, walks up to him and says, sir, you're going to have to get rid of that. And the man's like, oh, I know, I know, I know. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing. I, yeah, I, we're, we're leaving now. It's no problem. And, and, and the angel's like, would you like me to kill it? And he's like, I, well, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I've lived with this sin for so long. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm going to get it checked out, I promise. I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm, and you know what? Probably the gradual process would be better than just killing it, like taking it away from me, right? I mean, I'm going to go and blah, 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 blah. And the angel looks at him and is like, do you want me to kill it? Do you want me to pour God's wrath on that sin? And he's like, <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to have to think about it. You know, honestly, you'd probably kill me if you killed the sin that's in my life. So I'll die too, so it's probably not worth it. And the angel's like, it is not so. You will not die. 
But I didn't say you won't experience pain. It's going to be very painful. And the man's like, okay, uh, let me just, I'm going to get back on the bus. And I promise uh, I'm going to make this thing quiet. It's going to stop whispering into my ear how I'm going to be okay. And I can keep doing it as long as I want. And it's no, it's no problem. Uh, let me just get back on the bus. And the angel's like, do you want me to kill it? And he's like, yes, yes, because I do realize that ultimately, if you don't, I'm going to die anyway. And so C.S. Lewis describes, well, I brought it. Be better than my story of it. The man says, why are you torturing me to the angel? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. The angel says, I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'd be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be sort of a ghost. Not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He doesn't know, understand real pleasure. Only dreams. But they're better than nothing, aren't they? I'll be so good, I promise. I know I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams. All sweet, fresh, and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission? said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did? You're right, says the man. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may, said the angel. Blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God, help me. God, help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. Ow! That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and shoulder of the man, then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands. Hey, Hunter, Andrew, sit. Andrew, Andrew. Sorry about that. I'm not going to take that riding lizard, I promise. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the, and the shoulder of a man, then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed, So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between a huge body. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I'd ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle winning and stamping with its hooves. Each stamp, the land shook and the trees dwindled. Horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils. 
The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have only been the liquid love of brightness. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew what was happening. They were riding to the foothills and into the arms of God. The point of the story is the wrath of God came down on the sin the man could not let go. Because God knew that the sin was the thing that was keeping him from God. It was the sin itself that his wrath came down on, not the man himself. The call for us, whether you've been a believer for a long time or you don't even know where you stand before God, the point is that God wants to be near. That God is fighting to be near you. And He will do anything it takes. Just like that killing that lizard that was on the shoulder of that man. He will do whatever it takes to draw near to you. That's the kind of God that we serve. That is the reason that Jesus was put through this agony. It was for us and for our salvation. And as we come to this table, I want us to be reminded this morning, as we partake of both the bread and the cup, that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that he could invite us to the cup of God's fellowship. That's what this table is. It's the cup of God's fellowship, and we are able to drink it in his presence at the banquet forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, I don't know. um, Lord, I have sins that need to be killed by you. I don't know what sin this morning that was brought to mind by your Holy Spirit in this room, Lord, but there are probably people here that know they have things that need to die that are keeping them from fellowship with you. Lord, and I pray that you would kill it. Do it quick, Lord. Help us. We can't do it ourselves, Lord. We've made bargains with you in the past. Lord, I've made bargains with you in the past. I've said, hey, can I just take the gradual route? Can I just, Lord, I just, you know, I just need this in my life. You're not quite enough. I need this thing, Lord. Help us to repent, Lord. We don't, we can't do it on our own. We need Jesus. And Lord, I pray that more than that, more than the, the focus on our sins, Lord, that you would place our focus upon the fact that Jesus, you drank the cup for us. We never have to experience separation from God. What a joy, what a delight, because you drank the cup for us. Jesus, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our service. You are worthy of our lives. Lord, I pray that as we come to this table of fellowship where we'll drink of you, I pray that we would be deeply, deeply encouraged by the fact that you never will leave us, that you went to hell for us, and that you are going to draw us to yourself forever. Thank you that we cannot be separated from your love, Lord, and that we got to see a picture of it here in the garden, even today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned just earlier, On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body 
which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we would ask as the elements are passed around that you would hold and we'll partake together. And we would also ask that if you have not trusted God, that if you have not trusted Jesus for your salvation, that you would take this moment, you would take this moment and turn, turn from your sin and turn, turn toward God in faith and in belief.